In addition to the standard issues of, uh, you know, the post-genome world of the parts list and, of course, all the, the getting a real good picture of uh, the unknown, uh, one of the areas that uh, I think uh, in all of our minds is uh, really a major component of any future uh, approach to biology uh, uh, is chemistry and, uh, in particular, uh, I am very, m myself, very much taken with the change, the possibilities that were opened up by the possibilities of making, uh, now that you know all the genes, uh, specify all the proteins, you can tag these uh, proteins with things that you can see or you can follow in other ways. And one of the great pioneers in uh, making this real, as opposed to a, uh, simply a concept, uh, is our next speaker, uh, Roger Chen. And uh, uh, Roger has, uh, you know, lots of uh, uh, um, innovative stuff to his credit. Um, but to me, the thing that has really been the, uh, the most fantastic uh, thing is the ability, uh, as I said, to follow not only individual proteins, but the interaction of those proteins in a living cell in real time. Uh, now, some of this, of course, has to do with the development of computers and the development of, uh, you know, optical systems and, and stuff like that. But it should not be forgotten that a very large part of the uh, uh, progress of science is the ability to adapt technology that's out there, uh, which may take just a little step. But in order to adapt that technology, you've got to understand it. And in order to understand it, you have to do that rather than learn a few more facts about cell biology. And so that brings us back to the thing. And it's not, it's not an attack on reductionism or, in fact, is it a celebration of reductionism. It's just the reality that our cranium is only so big and we have to set some priorities. And uh, Roger is going to uh, give us a whole other set of priorities that we could set. Is this seems to be on? Can you hear me now? Okay, so I guess I'm going to uh, show you a very misplaced set of priorities uh, in the sense that uh, I have a wide list of topics I could cover, and instead of properly choosing one and doing a good job on it, I will do a bad job on several topics. Uh, in this area of what can we use uh, from the genetic revolution to help us understand some of the questions that are already alluded to by uh, our introducers, by Shirley, David, and um, Lee. So uh, in a way, uh, well, let me just briefly mention, so I will talk about uh, how we can look at post-translational modifying activities inside live cells. In particular, uh, we've been making some progress of a very early sort on uh, protein kinases, which are the most important generic class of post-translational modifying enzymes, and then some progress on how to just see gene products or proteins in action in their sort of life cycle, how they are born, die, and uh, move around, and who they talk to inside cells and some new technology, which happens to have some chemical emphasis uh, at the moment. 
and the people in my lab who have done that, I won't go and read them all, but in general, the people down this column are the people in my lab, and when we've had outside collaborators, they're the right justified ones. The left justified ones are, 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 are my people. But Gene Jung, Rob Campbell, Oded Tour, Stephen Adams, Christina Hauser are the main ones in my lab, and then we've had a number of uh, absolutely essential colleagues. So uh, my take on the general question is, is that now that we have the genome, it's a lot, rather like a census list. And I was struck when the number of genes turned out to be only on the order of 25 to 30,000. That number sticks in my head because that's the size of the, that was, was the population of Livingston, New Jersey, where I grew up. Uh, and uh, it very much reminded me that, you know, I didn't know everybody in town by any means. Uh, we had some notorious figures. Our most notorious figure was a mysterious reputed gangster up in the northwest corner of town who lived sort of in the swamps, had a huge reclusive estate, and was rumored to occasionally bury people with concrete overshoes. Uh, we didn't, that, that was mainly so that high school kids didn't go trespass on his territory, I suspect, but later I heard that there was actually a grain of truth in that. Uh, and you just have, with a list of the people in town, what do you do with it? That doesn't tell you how the town works uh, or a, a small village. Uh, and that's what the organism is really like. It's sort of like a dynamic society with these different people. And what we, uh, you know, really need to know is, of course, what the laws and rules and regulations are. And that's hard to tell just from a telephone list. Uh, and as an intermediate step, it would at least be nice to know who talks to each other on a daily basis, who bumps into each other, who uh, gave birth to somebody else, uh, who put concrete over shoes on somebody else, etc. And uh, so that's why we've uh, settled on trying to look at some of these things. To image post-translational modifying activities such as kinases, protein-protein interactions, protein trafficking, all in space and time because the space and time aspect is what is perhaps missing from the traditional census list or genetic approach. And if we could do that, we might be able to synthesize those two threads that uh, we've heard about in the previous talks, the sort of microscopical, microscopical, morphological, descriptive approach and the genetic one. And that's maybe one place that since I'm not smart enough either to think of the truly orthogonal, brilliant sweep coming from the outside, I'm going to maybe postulate that the combination of the sort of Hegelian synthesis, we had this, you know, the first thesis and the antithesis being genetics, and if we put them two together, maybe that will provide a breath of fresh air. And we have to do all this in seed and space and time and then go on to inactivate or activate selected components, again, with spatial and temporal precision. You just heard about how important it is to be able to do microdissection on a paramecium and turn its cilia around. That's actually not something, that's not an easy experiment. I think, you know, would I be able to immobilize a swimming paramecium running around like that, catch it, dig a hole in it, turn it around, put it back in? And you think about how many experiments in embryology required this brilliant degree of being able to pull one cell out or make a graft and stick it back in. Uh, that's really hard to do. And now we have to do it at the molecular scale. And that's questions. And it needs a spatial and temporal aspect to it. And then eventually, since you all want to know about you know, how is this going to help disease, or so you said on your posters, uh, <laughs> one thing at least in the short term it might do and has begun to do is help high throughput screening to find candidate drugs and imaging that would eventually help clinical people, uh, first transgenic organism and maybe even eventually human patients could be another potential offshoot, none of which I will show you today because we are nowhere near that. But, you know, it just, 
that shows that there are some long-term potentials. Okay, so how can we look at uh, protein-modifying activities? Uh, and in particular, kinases and phosphatases. And we would like to be able to do so under genetic control to pick not just any kinase, but to do it in specific locations on specific kinases in a general, generalizable way. We obviously have to use the tools of genetics, but plus something else to make it visible in microscopy. And for a lot of what we do, of course, we have to rely on the mutants of the green fluorescent protein, which was the sort of first gen general handle by which you could make the link between genetics and microscopy. And so we use the cyan fluorescent protein and the yellow fluorescent protein, which are the two different mutants of the jellyfish green fluorescent protein with these carefully chosen colors. And to make them sensitive to phosphorylation, the general trick that we are using at the moment is to first build a substrate peptide, shown here as a pink sausage. And I don't, is, are the lights on a bit high? I'm, I'm worried a little bit, especially when you get to some of the more data slides, that this is going to be a bit hard to see. But anyway, I leave that as a hint to the AV people. Uh, the substrate peptide is a peptide chosen to be the best possible and most specific possible substrate for our favorite kinase. That is really what chooses which kinase we're going to look at. And in order to translate that into a the phosphorylation of such a peptide into a conformational change, we have to put in one other element, which is a phosphoamino acid binding protein or motif, shown here, schematized here by the sort of brown catcher's mitt. Uh, which is supposed to have a site in it, and we cho chose choose various ones from nature that can bind phosphoamino acids that don't bind in the absence of the phosphorylation, such that when this peptide here in pink picks up its orange dot, the orange circle is the phosphate on a serine, threonine, or tyrosine, then it will be able to fold in such a way, the whole complex folds, that that falls into the binding site of the phosphoamino acid. And that causes an overall conformational change of the pink and brown pair, which then forces the appended cyan and yellow proteins, which are bracketing this complex, to change their conformation in such a way. And that change in conformation we sense by fluorescence resonance energy transfer, which is why we picked two colors in the first place. That uh, two fluorophores brought within molecular proximity on the scale of a few tens of angstroms or a few nanometers will talk to each other in a quantum mechanical way. This is the physical science contribution. Uh, and uh, thereby, uh, when they're brought into that state, then the absorbance of light in the cyan fluorescent protein, instead of giving us the normal emission from the cyan, will instead be transferred or have some probability of being transferred to the yellow protein by a quantum mechanical tunneling effect, basically, and then the yellow protein emits a yellow light when the conformation is suitably close, and much less so when they are relatively remote. And uh, then to plot this to different kinases, you simply have to vary the substrate peptide and the phosphoamino acid binding motif, with the cyan and yellow being relatively constant. And this has been applied in a number of cases, and the published ones are PKA, Gene uh, Zhang did that. Um, not, I won't have time to talk about PKB, which is AKT as well. I will briefly dis introduce PKC, and I will not have time to talk about the tyrosine-based uh, kinases uh, today because that stuff has been mostly published, both by us and by uh, other groups, in particularly in Japan. So let me start with the C kinase reporter, and here I really would like to have the lights down a bit. Uh, the, the construct here is a cyan protein 
FHA2 is our phospho amino acid binding motif. It is a phosphothrenine preferring uh, motif. And then in red here, dimly visible, is the substrate peptide, uh, which has its complete sequence drawn here because it's the sort of crucial uh, specificity determining element. And the threonine that's designed to be the PKC uh, the target is shown here in capital letters and some of its uh, other uh, helper amino acids that help focus PKC on it are also capitalized. And this was designed with the help of the very valuable uh, website at MIT from Michael Yaffe and Lou Cantley where they, you can sort of type in kinase substrates and uh, potential substrates and it will give you a scoring. As does this kinase like it? And will tell you which all the other possible kinases that it might also go for. And with this, you can sort of help you design one that's not just good for, in this case, PKC, but is bad for all its nearest relatives. Uh, and then finally, the yellow protein. And when uh, this gets phosphorylated, there is a conformational change. And in this case, I have to admit, it goes opposite from the cartoon. In the cartoon, I postulated that phosphorylation would increase FRET. In fact, we don't really care as long as there's a change. We don't care if it goes up or down. In this particular case, FRET goes down upon phosphorylation. Uh, and uh, a little movie of how this actually happens is shown here. And this is really going to be hard to see with the lights on. Uh, but this is the very first one that experiment that's practically got to work, where we transfected this construct. It's just a big DNA construct, you know, four-part chimera. Stick it in. This is untargeted so far just sits on the cytosol C-car, the C-kinase activity reporter, and it just sits there statically until halfway through uh, John Violin poured on some forbal ester, which of course is the unnatural carcin pro-carcinogenic activator of PKCs. And what you'll see, I hope, is a cooling of the color where um, the sort of yellow-orange turned down to sort of a more bluish color. and. Very, okay, now that the lights are gone, let's do that once more. I think you might see it this time. So it's reddish mostly there. You put on forbal ester there, and it gets cooler. You know, not a huge change, but it's a foothold. It's a 20 or 30% change in fret. Uh, let me show you, you know, some evidence that this is actually specific for protein kinase C. Uh, when we do it in vitro, you get a nice phosphorylation stoichiometry in a few minutes, which nicely parallels P P32 incorporation. And when you put in calcium calmodulin-dependent kinase or protein kinase A, which are the nearest relatives in the genome to this particular kinase, they can't do anything with respect to either phosphorylation or the FRET change. That was in vitro in live cells. You can check out the specificity by uh, putting on forbal ester, and there you get the FRET change, which is a decrease in the yellow to cyan ratio, shown there. And it is fully reversible in that when you take away, uh, when you inhibit protein kinase C, then it falls right back down. So this is a substrate for phosphatases in a cell. Meanwhile, if you activate protein kinase A by forcing the raise cyclic AMP, or if you raise calcium by first inhibiting PKC and then releasing calcium from internal storvathapsigargan, nothing happens. So again, we have the specificity over the two main worries, which were its nearest neighbors. Uh, we can check that the threonine that I targeted, I, sh I highlighted, is indeed the phosphorylation site. If you mutate that, just one threonine to alanine, then there's no response to anything. And 
Now, we don't have to use formal ester to activate it if we put on a, uh, uh, an agonist that would naturally cause the formation of calcium and diacylglycerol inside the cell, namely UTP on this particular cell type activates purinergic receptors, which activates phospholipase C. You get a spike, I'm sorry it's sort of dim, but you get this spike of uh, activation, which then fades away. And at that scale, it looks fairly boring. Uh, it's starting to get a little more interesting in a moment. Uh, it turns out that this is such a good substrate for phosphatases that you can see that they're continually opposing PKC. Here's the baseline trace. You stimulate it with a maximal dose of forbal ester to turn on protein kinase C really hard, and you get a nice, what we thought was a nice response, and you inhibit it with a PKC inhibitor, it goes back down, and then it turns out that if you inhibit phosphatases, even with protein kinase C inhibited, you get a response which eventually exceeds that that you can get by uh, pushing hard on PKC. So the cell in this case is rather like a car driving with its brakes on all the time with respect to phosphorylation. Forbolester is pushing hard, but the brakes are still on, and so the car can't go very fast, more faster than 20 miles an hour. It's only when you take the brakes off that it sort of rolls downhill, and it can reach a terminal velocity of a, full, a much fuller phosphorylation. That just shows you how powerful the phosphatases are all the time. And a further, more spectacular example of that is shown here. Now, I have up to now been mostly talking about the untargeted uh, indicator, but uh, crucial to the fact that it's genetically encoded is that we can simply put targeting sequences on it and move this substrate, which is otherwise, we believe, enzymatically untouched. With this, this, it's the same as it always was with respect to its direct susceptibility to the enzyme. It's merely been moved to a different location. And here we stuck a, put on a targeting sequence at the end terminus that would cause the meristillation and palmitillation of the indicator. And now the indicator is a plasma membrane localized, as shown here. You can see it lighting up the, in the periphery of the cell. And now when you activate with histamine you know, in HeLa cells, but it's really pretty much the same. It's not the nature of the stimulus. It's the fact that it's now in the plasma membrane. Now when you stimulate, you don't just get a little blip and a return to baseline or a plateau. You get steady oscillations in the PK, in the CK, CCAR response, which is shown in black here as a spike, a spike, a spike, and so on. And of course, when you see rhythmic oscillations in a cell like this, people in this field immediately suspect calcium oscillations. So we set about measuring calcium simultaneously with another dye. And uh, John Violin picked fewer red just because it was far away in wavelengths from the cyan and yellow. And with that, he could show that indeed for every one of the PKC spikes, there was also a calcium spike. So they are phase locked to each other. But then upon closer examination, if you look at these very carefully, you'll see that the red trace usually just slightly precedes the black trace. The black is the phosphorylation, the red trace is the calcium. And then when you superimpose, take a whole lot of peaks and average them together just to help you see that and expand a time scale. Again, the red trace is the calcium response, the black trace is the PKC, and you can see that although they're phase locked, there is a time delay between them. PKC is about 10 or 15 seconds delayed after each calcium, which makes sense in a, in, in a way because calcium first has to tell the PKC to translocate to the plasma membrane, and then you have to get enzymatic activation, and the enzymatic activation has to accumulate enough. It has to find substrates and phosphorylate a significant fraction. 
And it's also striking that the phosphatases, again, are so active that they can dephosphorylate it freshly every cycle and not just give us one steady plateau, which is what I think most people would have expected, that PKC would not have the temporal bandwidth to follow a, a, a one-minute oscillation, but in fact it does. Uh, so, uh, of course, you can spoil this if you want by deliberately putting in too much substrate. And if you put in a heck of a lot of substrate, as shown as going from the green to the red to the black trace, uh, that's increasing levels of transfection. Then when you put too much in, there's so much substrate that the, I guess the kinase doesn't have time to find very much of it, and the oscillations get more and more damped uh, because of the excess of uh, substrate that the kinase can't handle. And presumably that may be also why the cytosolic indicator doesn't show oscillations because it has too much diffusional delay to get to the membrane, which is where the PKC has to be doing this uh, activation in an oscillatory manner. So that's looking at protein kinase C, one of the main players in carcinogenesis. Uh, a quick look at CAM kinase or calcium calmodulin dependent kinase 2, one of the major players in neuronal plasticity. Uh, supposedly just sensitive to calcium and previously thought to be pretty promiscuous with respect to where the calcium comes from. Uh, this is the work of Vikas Davuri uh, uh, and uh, together with Jean Zhang. Uh, Vikas is a rotating medical student who did this last summer. Uh, unfortunately, he's back and you know doing gross anatomy and stuff. So the experiments have come to a halt, waiting for that to finish. Uh, but. Uh, here, it's the same basic structure, ECFP fused to FHA again, and now a different substrate, which has been tuned to be chamkinase 2 preferring, and then citrine. I won't go through all the specificity controls. And here, it's in PC12 cells, where if we raise calcium, we get, with, for example, a potassium depolarization, we put 50 millimolar KCL on these cells have voltage-dependent calcium channels. The depolarization gives you a calcium spike, as shown here by a Fura 2 reading. And then we get a very rapid uh, change in uh, or a spike of CAM kinase activity, causing the substrate to get phosphorylated. Once again, it's a decrease in threat rather than an increase. But what we found striking is that if we raise calcium by a different means, which is bradykinin, bradykinin is much more like the ATP um, or the uh, uh, histamine of the previous uh, trace uh, in the um, histamine uh, in, the, uh, in the HeLa cells, that one will act through receptors to activate phospholipase C to release calcium, to make inositol trisphosphate to release calcium from internal stores. And we can get an equally good calcium increase as we did with this one, but somehow it fails to activate CAM kinase 2. Nothing happens here. Now, you might think that this is the difference between plasma membrane entry and release from internal stores. Not shown here, and I'm sorry I don't have the trace to, to really document it the best way, but we're pretty sure this happens. If you use caffeine, which is another way of releasing it from the internal stores, you can get a spike like that, and once again, you get phosphorylation. So it's not a simple division between internal stores and plasma membrane entry. There are several ways you can raise calcium, even from the internal stores, and some of them activate CAM kinase 2, and some of them don't. And we are mystified as to how this compartmentation can occur, but it tells you that there's sort of even more private line signaling inside cells than we had previously suspected. And in this case, we didn't even target the CAM car it wasn't any special place. It was just let loose in the cytosol. And even then, it sees this big difference. And on top of all these differences that we see that are already pre-existing inside the cell, we can induce this sort of a, 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 um, distinction in the activation mechanisms 
in a more uh, uh, sort of uh, clinically relevant and drug-dependent manner. And here I have to go back to PKA, or the cyclic AMP, which activates protein kinases, and tell you that we had a little collaboration with Jerry Olesky, one of the prominent diabetologists at UCSD, who came to us with this little problem, that they have been looking at the effects of beta-adrenergic agents, isoproteranol, for example, on adipocytes, which are the fat cells, uh, a great interest to a lot of us since 60 or 80% of Americans are now set, 60% are said to be obese. Uh, and we wish we had more of a, a cyclic AMP ability to uh, cause uh, lipolysis in fat cells. And uh, of course, unfortunately, a lot of us also have uh, high insulin levels, that's type 2 diabetes. And Jerry had noticed that when you have chronic insulin pretreatment of fat cells, now uh, it's, it has effects on the cyclic AMP pathway in adipocytes. But for them, this effect was a bit paradoxical. It actually, the fact that you have put these adipocytes into insulin for eight hours in advance makes them more able to generate cyclic AMP in response to beta-adrenergic agents. So this is the normal response to isoproteranol acutely. You put on the isoproteranol time zero, and within five minutes there's a peak in traditional assays of cyclic AMP, breaking open the cells, radioamino assaying it, uh, and then it decays, whereas if you pre-treat them with insulin, you get a slightly bigger rise. And that's even more pronounced if you then come back a little while later with a second treatment of isoproteranol after there's been some desensitization. There's an even greater distinction between the insulin-treated and the non-treated ones. And uh, that's, it turns out that chronic insulin they had already found down-regulates beta-arrestin, which is the down, itself the down-regulator of the beta-adrenergic uh, beta signal, and therefore it causes supersensitization of the beta-2 adrenergic receptor. Uh, however, if you bypass the beta-adrenergic receptor using forceflin, there's no difference with and without insulin. So this seemed to be a coherent story that they were ready to publish, and uh, Jerry's came to me because I was a colleague and said, well, would you just check this with your kinase activity reporter? And he sort of promised that we'd get a footnote in the paper or one uh, panel of one figure, you know, just to confirm by microscopic methods the sort of latest and sexiest, the basic biology that they had already discovered with a lot of paint. So uh, Gene was willing to give it a try, uh, and uh, so we applied it. And here's ACAR2, cyan, FHA2. Now this is a PKA substrate, uh, which is basically chemtide with a threonine instead, and YFP. And we got a surprise, big surprise. You put on isoproteranol, and sure enough, you get rises in uh, the uh, phosphorylation by cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase with a bit of a delay and then a rise. That's okay. But then it turned out that insulin pretreatment had the wrong effect. Instead of Remember, it made more cyclic AMP, but the phosphorylation turns out to be weaker and more delayed. So if you compare, for example, this is, you know, with a huge amount of isoproteranol, uh, the blue trace, no, no, sorry, the black uh, um, squares is the normal response, instantaneous, almost instantaneous, within a few seconds, the substrate. This molecule is completely phosphorylated with a time response of 10 seconds or so, just for mixing time. But then if you had pretreated it with insulin in the way that it would make more cyclic AMP, then this response is delayed. Eventually you get up there, but it's delayed. If, if instead of using a whopping dose of isoproteranol, you titrate it back down to a little bit more physiological, like one micromolar, then again, the blue, uh, uh, excuse me, the green one is without 
any special pretreatment. It's just a little bit delayed, but again, it rises. And then if you have had insulin pretreatment, you get this considerable lengthening in the delay and a weakening of the response. So whereas insulin pretreatment gets you able to make more cyclic AMP, it gives you less final activation of the kinase. And it's the final activation of the kinase that's going to set downstream events, such as breaking up the fat, uh, lipolyzing it, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, we have to check, is there something wrong with the indicator? Maybe the insulin pretreatment has screwed up the indicator and it's no longer able to respond or it's less sensitive to cyclic AMP. And that is not the case because it's highly specific to the beta-adrenergic receptor. If you raise cyclic AMP with forskolin, which bypasses it, then everybody is on the same footing. Insulin pretreatment doesn't make any difference in the ability to see that response. And even if you go to something more direct yet, and even faster, the forskolin has a little bit of delay, if we release cyclic AMP by direct uncaging, now that means exposing the cells to a lipophilic membrane permeant derivative of cyclic AMP that's biologically inactive until you shine UV light on it. Then it releases cyclic AMP by uh, deep UV photolytic deep protection. You only have to flash for five seconds, you get this big pulse of cyclic AMP. And again, it doesn't matter whether it's insulin pretreated or control, they all rise essentially uh, instantaneously. So it's highly specific to the beta-adrenergic receptor. And what we think is happening is that uh, we may have actually uncovered something more in interesting. Chronic insulin, we think, may be disrupting a preferential linkage of the beta-adrenergic receptor to PKA, where there was a privileged sort of uh, communication pipe between them. And normally, this is the textbook the, uh, description we would have. Isopaternal activates beta-adrenergic beta receptors, activates a G protein, GS activates adenylyl cyclase, raises cyclic AMP, activates PKA, and in our case, we have offered it ACAR2, our colorful substrate, as a model substrate for it to work on, but it has many other real substrates to do, and phosphodiesterases are what break down cyclic AMP. This is the textbook story. Of course, in recent years, people have decorated it with a lot more, such as beta-arrestin, Bob Lefkowitz's work, and so on, which um, directly inhibits the beta-adrenergic receptor, but is stimulated by it in a little negative feedback loop. Uh, Bob Lefkowitz recently published uh, that uh, uh, there's also a link to uh, phosphodiesterases, where beta-arrestin promotes phosphodiesterases that break down cyclic AMP, so it has another means of causing negative feedback. And maybe the different cyclic AMP pools, forskolin and uncaging cyclic AMP will make cyclic AMP in some broad delocalized manner. And there is some hints in other cells that beta-adrenergic receptors may make a cyclic AMP that has a special access in some mysterious manner to PKA and is more effective mole for mole than this type form of cyclic AMP. But what we now have to postulate that chronic insulin not only knocks down beta-restin, which is what Oleski had already done by direct traditional gel methods. He showed that there was an actual loss of beta-restin by a proteasomal degradation pathway. What we now have to add is that chronic insulin seems to be disrupting the special coupling between cyclic AMP and PKA, such that this cyclic AMP no longer has privileged access and is no much better than the regular one, which would explain why you can get more cyclic AMP than ever and less PKA activation. And so uh, this sort of uh, uh, compartmentation may actually be dynamically regulatable, in this case, by insulin for eight hours. So overall, let me, uh, we could have the lights up just a little bit. Uh, the prospects and limitations 
Uh, we think that it's genetic, because it's genetically encodable, it's easy to load and target and eventually could be done in transgenic animals. It's generalizable to many kinases and phosphatases. I hope you've seen some examples of that. It's improvable by mutagenesis. By no means are these perfect. They're non-destructive assays with relatively high spatial and temporal resolution, including the ability to target the substrates at a sub-microscopic level. It's an emission ratio which helps. The biological story I've tried to give you is that in every case, PKC, CAM kinase 2, PKA, the degree of activation is more complicated depending either on kind of, uh, a reporter localization or source of the calcium or source of the cyclic AMP than we had previously expected from a textbook idea that you have a nice sort of linear pathway, uh, lockstep uh, obligatory activation. But we will acknowledge that these are surrogate substrates, but sometimes surrogates are useful. They are the reporters which come in without preconceived biases, we hope, and will give you some feeling for, it's like in a public opinion poll with a neutral observer, as well as actually knowing what people with all their natural prejudices will respond to the public events of the day. And so we complement, but we don't replace the measurement of endogenous substrates. I don't think I'll have time to talk about the different colors that are now available. Uh, partly, uh, we've, ha we've been busily mutating other fluorescent proteins because we want more colors than cyan and yellow. This work is published, and I'm already swamped with requests, so I will not uh, you know, do much further advertising for more of them. But I will just show this particularly pretty uh, uh, a little rosette for made for Christmas time. Uh, where Rob Campbell put together uh, some of the mutants that he's made, all based on the monomeric red fluorescent protein, and basically he can cover every color in the spectrum uh, in these Petri dishes. Each one is a dish with bacteria expressing a different mutant. Uh, and um, some, unfortunately, in some cases, the plates were rather old. That's why, in this case, the protein is mostly leaked out of the colonies. Uh, so it's a diffuse blue color instead of concentrated in the colonies like that one. But we do have a lot of colors, and that will give more room for the future, including possibly going in vivo with some of the redder ones, which will be more suitable. Instead, for the last few minutes, I want to turn now to the use of a chemistry to supplement the purely genetic technology. Well, you know, GFP and its mutants and the red fluorescent protein are wonderful for us. They're the most popular things we produce. Uh, in the lab, uh, and of course, because they're genetically encodable, in principle, you only have to distribute a cDNA on a, a postage stamp sized piece of filter paper, send it around the world, and then they don't, in principle, don't ever have to bug you again because it propagates itself. Uh, on the other hand, we should be grateful that the jellyfish, for its own reasons, made fluorescent protein or corals and so on. There are an awful lot of phenotypes that we would still like to have that would be awfully useful for this job of turning genotype into phenotype, uh, including the ability to see an electron microscope instead of the light microscope, and the ability to kill a protein selectively, the ability sometimes to see the age of a protein. And the jellyfish has not always given us the answer to those, whereas organic chemistry still has a much greater variety of spectroscopic properties that it can confer. If you someday want to see something by magnetic resonance imaging with gadolinium, I doubt there's any organism in the world that has ever had a need to make a magnetic resonance imaging contrast agent for your benefit. Uh, amazing that the jellyfish, we could hijack its wish to be bioluminescent and change its colors for fluorescence. And so also GFP is a decent-sized protein of 238 amino acids. 
the minimum size that any fluorescent protein has ever been is still over 200 amino acids. That's a big hunk of protein, and it can often be the tail that's wagging the dog. If the dog is the whatever you're trying to study, it's often swamped by its own tag. And so we would have long been interested in whether or not we can tag proteins with organic chemicals in the live cell, not just out in vitro, which is where plenty of people do it. You purify the protein. Sometimes you put in a unique cysteine. You have it nice and pure. You label it. And you do some biophysics on it. We want, and then if you want to do it in a cell, you have to micro-inject it. Well, that's a, can be done. Pretty tough. We've killed ourselves enough, enough times on it to hate doing it. We want to do it in situ, and we want genetic control. Uh, so what we came up with several years ago was this idea of a genetically encodable, very small motif, which can be as small as six amino acids, cysteine, cysteine, XX, cysteine, cysteine. Uh, I won't have time to go into it, but we now believe that the best XX is proline glycine, as far as we know, uh, that makes this motif most efficient. And this little motif can be put into, uh, you know, fused onto proteins just like GFP, but it's obviously much smaller. And the key is to find a dye that can go and hunt and seek out this little motif in the context of a living cell with all the other proteins around. And such a dye is shown here as flash EDT. It's a fluorescein-based arsenical hairpin binder. It's a fluorescein dye with two arsenics sticking out. Uh, and that each arsenic loves a pair of cysteines. And we believe that the complex has a structure sort of like that, where each arsenic has grabbed a pair of cysteines. Uh, and the two of them together grab all four cysteines, and that's how we make it uh, distinctive enough to beat out the natural pairs of cysteines that are already in the cell. And we help it by giving it an antidote, which called ethane diphyl, which is already pre-bound up here to the arsenics, protecting it. Uh, and can we, this antidote beats normal pairs of cysteines because it forms a nice tight five-membered ring. And the final complex has some stability we have measured in the order of picomolar or so. And as a final advantage, this stuff that we administer outside the cell of being non, being is membrane, Im, membrane permeant, but most remarkably, it's not fluorescent, whereas when inside the cell and when it plugs into its binding site, it then becomes fluorescent, which is a great additional advantage. Uh, we, importantly, we also have analogs now, which are sterically the same from the outside, but in this case, it's based on resorufin instead of fluorescein, so this carboxyphenyl group has been chopped away and replaced by a lone nitrogen. It's even smaller, but it's redder uh, because of quantum mechanical effects. This is a red dye, but it will bind to the very same site and compete with the flash. So we have a red and a green dye that can both label the same site. And an example of what can be done with it is on connexin 43, which is a major constituent of gap junctions, 43 kilodaltons, and onto which we tagged a tetracysteine domain at the C terminus. And fortunately, this did not perturb the function of, of the connexin, which is to form gap junctions. The, there was no difference in the ability to form electrically conductive systems. And the fact that there are endogenous cysteines scattered throughout the molecule that are boxed here in red, they don't matter because they're lone cysteines. They would have completely killed traditional means of cysteine labeling because you would have labeled them all too. But since we need a tetracysteine, it seems to be OK. And here's what we can do with it. Now I would like the lights down, please, if somebody can either. I wish I knew how to do this here, but OK. So we take some cells that are expressing the connection. They're expressing it all the time. We pulse them first with flash, which is the green dye. And that labels all the connection 43s that have been made up to that point. Then we wash out the unbound dye. 
and then we wait a couple hours, and during that time the cells keep making connections, but it's crucial that the off rate of flash from the protein is very slow on, when you don't kick it off. It's on the order of days. So during this time, we make new protein molecules that are unlabeled because we washed out the unbound dye. The ones that were labeled stay green. The new ones are colorless. But then we can uh, come along with the red dye, chase it with reash. And in this pulse chase experiment, the old one should be green and the new one should stain red. And we had first expected that the cell, depending on the length of time that the cells had to make new protein, the junction would be first totally green, and then sort of greenish yellow, then yellow, then orange, then red. But instead, what happened was a very much more ordered pattern, in which a given gap junction was totally green in the middle and red at the edges. And this pattern was observed with a roughly four hours gap, in which the cell had four hours with which to make new protein. And by the time you increased it to eight hours gap, this junction had completely turned over and was now all red. And intermediate ones were intermediate. And that tells you that there's a much more ordered pattern in which the connections replace new ones, replace old ones. New ones are specifically packed at the edges. Old ones are taken away from the middle. And they don't seem to mix very well. There's a pretty sharp dividing line between the green and the red as time goes on. And so uh, it actually turns out those were confocal pictures as optical sections. When you reconstruct it in 3D, it's not a red, green, red stripe, but it's actually uh, a disk in which you have sliced through the middle. Uh, uh, and when you turn it 90 degrees, you see it's a green bullseye instead of a red, in, in, in a red ring. Uh, and so what you think is happening is that uh, first, the cells are making connections all the time. Flash labels everything. At that stage, you don't see anything useful. You wait four hours, and then unlabeled protein accumulates. That's shown in gray as uh, having no particular color. And then the reash can come in, and it can only occupy the empty sites. It can't displace the old flash. And that's where we get the color pattern. As an important control, if you reverse the order of labeling, put on the red dye first and the green dye second, you, of course, reverse the color pattern, showing that there's no intrinsic speciality between the red and green. It's an arbitrary pulse chase. And if the red dye goes on first, then it's the, the red is the center rather than outside. So that's one thing you can do, see pro distinguish old and young protein copies. But another next thing we can do is it turns out that Riesch is quite good at making singlet oxygen. When you excite it, it not only gives you red fluorescence, but it, some of it crosses over to the triplet excited state and then reacts with ordinary oxygen, which those of you who were forced to take general chemistry may very, very faintly remember that oxygen is very unusual, that its ground state is a triplet due to Hund's rule. And that if it can become a singlet, that you won't have had in undergraduate chemistry. When it turns into a singlet, it's incredibly reactive, sort of like fluorine gas, because the normal barrier that keeps oxygen from burning us all up is the fact that it spins our parallel. It's a triplet and it's in the wrong spin state. So the uh, uh, excited reash can make singlet oxygen in a catalytic manner. And then we can catch the singlet oxygen with something called diaminobenzidine. And the singlet oxygen, being incredibly reactive, can only migrate an extremely short distance on the order of a few nanometers before it reacts with the diaminobenzene. This is all done on fixed cells. And it makes a localized polymer that is easily stainable by osmium tetroxide and therefore visible by the electron microscope. So by this genetically encoded tag, we can then put in the reash, which then catalyzes this amplifying process that then leads to something you can see in the electron microscope. And uh, an example of what happens is here. We have 
some cells that we view by light microscope, light microscopy. This you can do while the cells are alive. This is the red fluorescence due for two gap junctions and some Golgi apparatus. And then the very same cells after this so-called photoconversion process where we, you do the photooxidation, diaminobenzidine, osmium, you can see the very same gap junctions, again, at electron, with electron microscope. And the key thing is now we can blow up the image by magnifying it. The electron microscope permits us and we can go to the point where we see two closely opposed plasma membranes with the individual connexons. Not quite individual, but we can see the dense uh, studying of the plasma membrane with connexons. And because this is an amplifying process, and which we have stoichiometrically labeled the connexons, it was stoichiometric in the sense that if it hadn't been, we would have had more mixture of the green and red. We must have labeled it you know, pretty thoroughly each time to prevent more of the same coming in. It's sort of dense there. Whereas immunogold is the traditional only other method by which you can see the molecular identifier, identity of macromolecules at the electron microscopic level. And it gives very spotty labeling because it's only occasionally that the antibody can find the, the correct epitope in a fixed tissue with all the diffusion problems that there are and light it up or, I mean, make a little black dot. Uh, so it gives much spottier labeling. Uh, and we can do the same trick in a pulse chase manner and only the red dye photoconverts and thereby we can see a new protein here at the edges an old protein in the electron microscope now. So the electron microscope which you would have thought is the worst possible time resolution now is given a little bit of feeling of uh, space of time uh, by this uh, pulse chase trick done beforehand. And uh, I recently heard a talk by Jim Rothman where he observed that most of the remaining problems in his field and probably a lot of fields in cell biology would be solved if only we had a molecular video electron microscope, right? <laughs> molecular identity, non-destructive at electron microscopic resolution. Well, we don't have that, but this is the barest, one possible bare hint into getting some of that. It has molecular specificity and a little bit of temporal resolution, clearly at the micro electron microscopic level. More interestingly, we can look at endocytotic and exocytotic trafficking. That was maybe a little too much, David, just a halfway in between. And we can now see the individual vesicles responsible for the traffic out to the plasma membrane and back. They are very distinct. The uh, gap junction, the connections are born near the Golgi, or they get butted into vesicles that are born near the Golgi. They're transported in these beautiful transport vesicles, and we know these are going out because they have young connections in them. With the green-red trick, we know that these are young guys. Then this one, uh, by you know, reversing the order of green and red, we can distinguish young from old. And uh, this is, we believe, exocytosis at the plasma membrane, which is where we think they first get to the membrane. When we saw these original profiles, Without the help of the pulse chase, we thought these were exocytotic. Look, isn't that a beautiful omega figure? But now we know from the reash versus flash labeling that this is old protein being carted away. This is an endocytosis, not an exocytosis. And sometimes you get two membranes going together as one, where one cell takes the responsibility of taking connections contributed by both parties into its backyard to be taken to the dumpster, which is here, the lysosomes. Now, there's one more trick. All of that was done with singlet oxygen in dead cells after fixation. What if we do it on live cells? Singlet oxygen is this fiend of a reactive oxygen species, and it turns out it's quite capable of killing the protein that was generating it. So here we have connections in a live cell, two cells that are forming a gap junction, Golgi, Golgi, gap junction. And we've Oded Tour is an electrophysiologist who patch clamps 
the two cells and can constantly measure the electrical coupling between this pair of cells. And that's shown here as the uh, ordinate, the y-axis, and there's good coupling, a 0.4 coupling ratio. 40% of the current injected into one cell can be patch clamped and uh, picked up in the other cell. And when you put on a modest amount of light, or even a pretty strong light, nothing happens. But when you turn, really pull out all the stops on the, on, the, on the filters and hit it with 17 watts per square centimeter, in 25 seconds, the gap junctions all are inactivated. And down they go, and there's no coupling left. So this is a rapid means of killing a genetically specified protein, which has been simply tagged with the tetracysteine and labeled REASH. It's very reminiscent, or basically the same, as the so-called Cali technique, chromophore-assisted light inactivation, that Dan Jay introduced, except he had to inject antibodies against the protein, which in the antibodies had to be micro-injected, had to be labeled with malachite green and micro-injected. And in fact, Stan Leibler, who was here, had done some further work showing that fluorescein could do it as well. But all of those were with micro-injected antibodies. And now, without membrane permeation or in micro-injection, looks like it's beginning to be possible uh, in a genetically controlled manner. Now, that was connexins. L-type calcium channels are even more sensitive, and this is in voltage clamp, where we have to activate the calcium channels by depolarization. And you get traces showing that before an activation, it's very stable amounts of current. That is, the first current pulse and the second current pulse give you exactly the same amount of current. Then uh, ODED puts on 10 seconds of light, and then, boom, half the channels are just about are gone. And again, it's stable in the dark. And then you put on a little more light, and then you lose another half of it, and then it's stable in the dark. So it's an instantaneous killing uh, within at least the time scale of a few seconds. And then it's stable. It doesn't keep progressing, and so on, until you can eventually go to extinction. And we do believe that this is a singlet oxygen process. Here's the chemist in me wanting some evidence that it really is singlet oxygen. The reason we care is that the distance over which this effect can travel depends crucially on who's doing the, the migration. And uh, we want it to know what it is. And we put on some of the classic tests. If you put on azide, it's not the best thing to put on cells in general, but this is a patch clamp cell, which we're providing ATP to. Uh, azide is a very good quencher of singlet oxygen. And when you have azide present, you shut off the killing or a little bit more physiologically friendly would, would be imidazole or histidine, where the imidazole ring also kills or eats up singlet oxygen and sacrifices itself to protect the proteins in the cell. And in that case, you again pretty much kill the uh, residual response. On the other hand, if you want to amplify it, it's well known that if you go to deuterated medium, then in D2O, the D to oxygen vibrational spectra is not nearly as good at quenching singlet oxygen as H2O. And this is what chemists do all the time. And you can put the cells in D2O, and then you get more killing for the same amount of light. Here, Oded put on a little less light so that the effect would be less maximal, and so he could see an enhancement, furthermore, due to deuteration. So this is our evidence, weak as it is, that deuteration, uh, that singlet oxygen is the responsive mechanism. I'm often criticized for only showing examples from one protein. We actually have done quite a few. These were done in my lab. Other people have done these. And most spectacularly, uh, Graham Davis at UCSF have just published a paper using the same sort of Cali, but with flash instead of REASH, 
to inactivate synaptotagmin and actually show its, dissect its role in an intact Drosophila embryo, not just tissue culture cells. And that was done without any help from us, uh, without our knowledge. In fact, they scooped us on the Cali. We were working on this Cali for a long time. David may remember I talked about it a year and a half, a year and a bit ago in Sweden. Uh, and we've been pottering along, thinking we had plenty of time to do this nicely and slowly. And uh, 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 Graham Davis has actually done an even more beautiful job uh, and published it already. Now, all that's good, but we're not satisfied. Uh, maybe we should have been. We should have stopped when we're ahead. But we still want one more tag, at least one more, that is not based on cysteines and arsenic. We want a histidine-directed one or something else because tetracysteine sequences only work in the reduced bile form. If they're in an oxidizing environment, such as in the secretory pathway outside cells, they form disulfides and the arsenic cannot get in. There are residual toxicity concerns of arsenic. Nobody loves arsenic, even though we have the antidote there. And even the antidote has its problems. It is smelly. It just plain, it's like uh, mercaptoethanol, but a little bit worse. Uh, and it would be nice to have an orthogonal alternative, even if you were also using arsenic, because it would permit two-color labeling of different proteins. We have two-color labeling of old versus young, but it's the same protein with the same binding site. And I can't direct the tetracysteine. If I'm using tetracysteines on two proteins, I can't color the two proteins distinctively different colors. And it would permit controlled heterodimerization if we made uh, sort of cross-linkers that had a histidine-directed and a cysteine-directed tag. Well, what else do you do? I'm not going to build unnatural amino acids. I, other people do that very well. I don't want to compete with Pete Schultz. That's a very stupid idea. Um, so uh, if I'm going to restrict myself to the genetically encoded amino acids, I think histidine has the next most distinctive chemistry. And it's well known. All sorts of molecular biologists know that you can purify his, his 6-tags with a nickel and cobalt column. Problem is, nickel and cobalt I wouldn't want to use on a live cell, and nobody tries. They're toxic on their own, and especially for fluorescence labeling, they quench fluorescence by paramagnetism or electron transfer. It doesn't bother you when you're just purifying. So we come to another metal, which we think is zinc. Why zinc? Think zinc. Because it's virtually non-toxic, and you will see here that people regularly dose themselves with zinc when they think they're getting colds or just on general principles. Uh, it's abundant in cells. There's millimolar zinc in all of you, so it can't be that bad for you. In the plasma, there's about 15 micromolar total. It's amazingly, nobody seems to be able to tell me what the free zinc is in plasma. It's amazing in this day and age that we don't know that, but uh, 15 micromolar is a fair amount. It's, of course, a non-paramagnetic colorless redox inactive metal that doesn't have some of the nickel and cobalt problems. It, too, loves to bind histidines, and it does so with very flexible geometry and stoichiometry. So what we've now built is this new molecule, which is the first time I've talked about it in public. You're getting subjected to it. I hope the patent lawyers did their job this morning. Uh, <laughs> and this is the dye. It is 2-bis-pyridyl-2-sulfonamidofluorescein. It happens to have two methyls. They're not probably very important. This is the dye. that It binds two zincs. And in a, we hope an analogy to the cysteine system. It binds histidine, histidine, something, something, histidine, histidine. And because there's so much background and millions of people have hexahistidine, we probably don't care that the two middle ones happen to be histidines as well, though they probably didn't have to be. And we think this is the structure of the complex, but we do not have proof of that. But we think it does show some sign of working. 
And our first test was in vitro, just to see if we could get binding, and of course, in a lab that does FRET and, and has the monomeric red fluorescent protein, the way we did it, or Christina Hauser did it, was to take MRFP and put a hexahistidine tag on it, or compare it, of course, to the protein that didn't have a hexahistidine tag, put the dye in, and look at some with the presence of zinc. So um, the blue trace is almost invisible. Maybe the lights could come down partway, David. Sorry about that. <sighs> Too much color. If you have just the dye, it has this spectrum, you put on the HIS6MRFP, and you get a quenching of the dye's own fluorescence and a re-emission that appears, which is not seen if you have just untagged messenger uh, MRFP that doesn't have a HIS tag. There's no reason for them to stick, and there's no loss in dye fluorescence and only a little bit of crosstalk out here. Uh, and this dependence is not only requiring the HIS tag, but requires zinc because if you, again, here's dye alone, you add the HIS tag messenger uh, MRFP, you get the quenching and a re-emission. But if you don't have zinc present, all you do is get the sum of the spectra. First, the dye has a slightly different spectrum without zinc, and there is much less hump out here, and there's no quenching. And so we think that this is a binding process that requires both the presence of the HIS tag and the presence of the zinc because without zinc and without the his tag, either one missing, you don't get the binding. And to test this on cells, I'm, we took the easiest route, which is the time being, is to do just where the tetracysteine has a hard time, which is on the outside of a cell, where we don't have to worry too much about the difficulties of controlling zinc, because it is the outside of a cell. So Christina, who started as a pure inorganic chemist, had gradually by osmosis in the lab, learned a little molecular biology, and so she put a hexahistidine tag on a vector, uh, in a vector called, called p-display, which uses the transmembrane domain of PDGF receptor to display whatever you want in the cloning site and put it on the outside of a cell. As a simple case, you just put a hexahistidine tag artificially on the outside of a cell, and you now transiently transfect. Not all the cells pick it up. Here's the transmitted light view and you see that some cells are beautifully stained on the outside. When you give them, just for 10 seconds, in one micromolar free zinc, uh, uh, expose them to the dye and then wash it off. The dye binds essentially instantaneously and coats the plasma membrane of those cells. And uh, not all of them cells, but our transfection efficiency is still not perfect. And if you do co-transfection with C CFP, you can just check which cells got picked up DNA, and this is the CFP channel, and these cells picked it up, and sure enough, the brightest cells with CFP are the ones that are showing up uh, as externally stained. And finally, because it requires zinc, if you take away the zinc, the stuff falls off right away. You wash it with EDTA, and these bright cells, in a little while later, are very nearly dark. A few of the cells have just a tiny bit left, and that looks punctate, and may have been the ones that have endocytosed a little bit really quickly. And so it does maybe survives a little bit inside the cell uh, as well. So in, now the lights can come back up. The summary is we have some hints, at least, that we have a histidine-based alternative. Uh, the zinc, ex at least so stained cells expressing the extracellular histidine tags. Obviously, there's nothing that should care about redox potential here, and it worked in an oxidizing environment. It's virtually instantaneous and reversible, and there are no smells. And so Christina likes that. Uh, there's plenty of more to be done. This is an extremely early stage, uh, but we need to, to really determine the binding affinities, detection limits, optimize staining, see if we can do this inside cells, determine the structure, com compare it with the tetracysteine and biarsenical. There's one interesting problem left, 
which all of you can participate in, which is what to call the stuff. I just kept calling it the dye, the dye, the dye. And in the lab, our local humorists have come up with different names. Actually, this first one was mine. It's a fluorescent zinc binder, so maybe it's a floozy. Um, uh, then you think about it a little more, and the zinc is a zipper between the histidine uh, sequence and the dye. So maybe it's histidine zipper, right, where the zinc is the zipper between the two, right? His, his zipper um, had more resonance a few years ago. Uh, and uh, I think, however, the one that has worked out the best is hissy fit for the histidine zinc fluorescent in vivo tag. Somehow that seems to be more magnetic in, my, in our collective memories, uh, and uh, that's probably what we'll call it in the future, hissy fit. Okay, so, but I, I welcome uh, other people, and, you know, brainstorming is great. Uh, David is pointing out that I'm out of time. Here's what summary of some of the things we can do. GFP can measure lots of things. Genetic encoding is great, gives it targetability, but there's still room for organic chemistry. And we have lots of wild fantasies. <laughs> Sorry, I'm. A couple of questions? Far too slow. Uh, we have not yet. Um, um, I suspect if it will be done, it will be done first in uh, a proper model organism uh, uh, that's better than mice, which is the one we would have tended to do. Uh, we're not sure to how well the current tetracyst biarsenicals will load in uh, mammalian serum, but as I said, uh, the um, um, in fact, I guess if you look at the American Davies paper, they did a knockout in Drosophila in a synaptotagma knockout and they put it back in and proved that it was genetically able to rescue function and that was their proof that, you know, that is the ultimate proof that the stuff is non-injurious. Uh, and they got staining to work in these flayed open filleted embryos. It's not quite a regular Drosophila but it's, not, it's a, still a reasonably intact organism. Uh, we haven't done it yet ourselves. But it would be very nice to do it, especially when you have knocked out the endogenous one, because then you can knock out the only copies, not just the, uh, if you want to do Cali or something like that. Now, in the case of when uh, proteins form multimeric complexes, it may well turn out that you can knock out the endogenous copy in trans. That is, if you do a mixture of labeled and unlabeled, the singlet oxygen may well kill the unlabeled ones because they're in the same complex but that may not be totally general. And so the very best is to have siRNA or a genetic knockout to kill it genetically, put it back in in a form, but now you can take it out in seconds with spatial control, and then we can have the advantages of, of everybody's uh, you know, technique put together. Uh, siRNA, obviously, and genetic germline knockouts don't give you spatial and rarely temporal uh, specificity. Sorry. Well, we're sort of trying. Uh, and for example, the flash reagent can be made into a calcium indicator. It's a fluorescein, and people have made many calcium 
indicators based on fluorescein, so you can stick that stuff on. And it's a problem of hands, not enough hands in the lab, uh, as you know, probably all know about. And uh, there is sometimes a wavelength issue, that we don't have enough wavelengths in the spectrum. The cyan and yellow are already fairly greedy. They eat up a bunch of spectrum. And if you measure calcium at the same time, even with existing calcium dye that's not targeted, you either have to go out into the red with fewer red or back into the UV with fewer two. Either one turns out to be doable. Uh, the most nice way, the nicest way to measure localized cyclic AMP and calcium is, of course, with its own genetically targeted indicator, for which we have examples. And we can't do them on top simultaneously with ACAR because they, too, are cyan yellow based. And uh, well, maybe when the red proteins get really good and we have green red ones, maybe we'll have enough channels to, to, to keep them all uh, apart from each other. Uh, basically, here we are building, you know, this is the field of dreams. We build things, we help other people. Uh, like your undergraduates of the future will be smart enough to uh, uh, you know, really make proper use of them and learn the biology that we are leaving behind right now. Well, we were thinking about the undergraduates. Thank you. Uh, we're going to have a break. Uh, I think we'll